This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. The birth of Jesus the Messiah. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Well, good morning. Lovely to be with you this morning. Um, my name's Chris, one of the pastors here. It's great that you're here with us. Um, if you're visiting us or new or looking for a church, just moved into the area, we'd love to tell you a little bit about St. Paul's. There's a welcome supper coming up in January and there's a welcome area at the back where we can give you a welcome pack to take away so you might be able to find out who we are and why we do a little bit of what we do. Um, Just to say, we had a really fantastic time uh, on Thursday evening. Uh, A load of us went to the Foresters pub at the top of Northfields Avenue to sing carols uh, with those who were in the pub. And it was a really great evening. It was really fun uh, giving out the carol sheets at the start. Because you always wonder, are people going to think this is a bit of a nuisance on a nice night out for us? But everyone was just so up for singing carols. People stopping, there was one huge game of Monopoly going on one table and gave that up and joined with us as we sang and we'll be at the plough tonight at the other end of Northfields Avenue so that'll be 8.30 so do come and join us as we sing carols with those in the plough it'll be a fun evening together let's pray together as we look at this passage Father in Advent we explore and focus on the coming hope of the kingdom of God and I pray this morning by your spirit you would renew our sense of hope that we would be ever so aware of your presence that we would hear your voice and that you would transform us more into your likeness in Jesus name we pray Amen Amen on my seventh birthday this is quite a long time ago um, we, um, my parents took me out of, myself and my sister, out of school, um, which I know you're not supposed to do anymore. It's teachers looking horrified at this point. It was okay in the 1940s. It was fine. And um, 
And we went to Alton Towers at the age of seven. It's my seventh birthday. I've ne- I'd never been before. And it was honestly like heaven on earth. I'd never been anywhere like it. And my dad introduced me to roller coasters. The corkscrew. And because it was October and it was a midweek, there was no queue. So I was able, literally, and I've probably went on it more than a dozen times, literally, I'd go on the roller coaster and I'd run back round and I'd go on it again. And I just did it time and time and time again. And that developed in me a real love for roller coasters. I do really enjoy the feeling when your stomach moves from here to about here and you kind of go upside down and you see people around you screaming and losing all control. And I just think that's wonderful. Nell, on the other hand, doesn't think the same as me about roller coasters, so we don't really share that love together, but that's fine because it's something I really enjoy. Um, my favourite, my Alton Towers is my favourite place to go for a roller coaster uh, or for a ride, and my favourite ride is a ride called Oblivion. Has anyone heard of that, been on that? Few people, okay. First time I went on Oblivion, I had to queue for about two hours. That's kind of, I think, a really kind of normal occurrence for a roller coaster queue. And I was with my housemates from university, and none of us had been on Oblivion. We'd seen all the adverts on television, and we were very excited. Um, you know, you, when you queue for a roller coaster, you look uh, at that queue ahead and you think, just get around this corner, and we'll be there. And you get around that corner, and you see the queue stretching as far as the eye can see and it just kind of seems to go on forever and, and the anticipation is building they have tv screens that give you glimpses of what you're about to experience with with a man half crazed looking like he's lost his mind and it's just building the the excitement and you finally get to the uh, uh, the ride and you climb in the car and you go up the slope and round the corner and then they hang you over a vertical drop and then drop you 45 seconds later it's all finished Queued for two hours for 45 seconds of fun. It's always worth it. I don't know if you have something that you just love to build up towards, that the anticipation is sometimes more exciting than the actual event, but uh, what is it at the moment that you're anticipating? What is it at the moment that you're excited about? What is it that you're expectant for? Um, You've, you may know this, but we, our Christmas kind of invitation this year was, was asking a question, you know, all I want for Christmas is, and then a blank. And we asked people to fill that in. I, I, I wonder what you would put in the blank uh, there. Maybe it would be, I would like a really great Christmas lunch. Turkey and all the trimmings. Twice. I don't know if that's what you're hoping for. That's what you're expectant for. That's what you're thinking about now as you do the final bits of shopping. Um, one person wrote on the board... Uh, that they really want for Christmas is a marriage proposal. Maybe that's something you're waiting for and hoping for and encouraging to happen. Maybe it's the arrival of a new child. You're excited. Maybe it's in your own family or, or uh, a relative or a friend and you're anticipating and excited about the arrival of a new child. But actually for some of us, we don't really have anything that we're anticipating or we're that excited about. And maybe actually the, the kind of, just as I love roller coasters and now my lovely wife isn't so keen on them, maybe actually for us, we're not really looking forward to anything. And 2014 doesn't seem like an exciting future. Well, this morning I want to take our reading and I want to focus right in just on three words that Matthew uses. Matthew quotes from Isaiah to, to talk about Jesus. And that's God with us. Because regardless of what our hopes are, our anticipation, what we're anticipating, what we're expectant for, those three words 
are words that can change everything. God with us. Before we get into that, I'd like us to watch uh, a clip from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I don't know if that's a a film you're familiar with uh, or a series of books that you've read by C.S. Lewis, but... Um, just to give a bit of context, uh, is that four, uh, four children, you'll see three of them in the clip, Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy have stumbled upon this incredible world called Narnia. Um, but when they find it, Narnia is in the kind of grip of a deep winter because there's a curse that's been placed over the land. But they are expectant that change is coming to Narnia. So let's watch the clip. We have come to see Aslan. Welcome, Peter, son of Adam. Welcome, Susan and Lucy, daughters of Eve. And welcome to you, Beavers. You have my thanks. But where is the fourth? That's why we're here, sir. We need your help. We had a little trouble along the way. Our brother's been captured by the White Witch. Captured? How could this happen? He betrayed them, your majesty. Then he has betrayed us all. Peace, Aureus. I'm sure there's an explanation. It's my fault, really. I was too hard on him. We all were. Sir, he's our brother. I know, dear one. But that only makes the betrayal all the worse. 
This may be harder than you think. So these four children, Edmund, the brother who's not there, who's uh, betrayed them to, to the white witch, they, they found themselves in the middle of this incredible story, of this, this country that was, uh, this place that was under a curse, that was in darkness in winter. But everyone they meet, the different characters they meet, there's something of an excitement and an expectation uh, that something is about to change. The beavers, the two beavers you saw on the screen, they're, they're excited. Why? Because each of the characters says this little phrase time and time again, Aslan is on the move. And that's what changes everything. You know, we find ourselves in the middle of the most incredible story. The story of God's saving work. What some theologians call the redemptive history. That God is on the move. That God is about bringing salvation and all that that means through the kingdom of God, uh, through his son, Jesus. Just as the coming of Aslan and the meeting of Aslan brings excitement and change and transformation in that, in, in that, in that place of Narnia, so that God's coming to us in Jesus does the same for his people. There's an anticipation, there's an excitement that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. This story of God's saving work in this world. And when we come to Advent, this season that we find ourselves in, in the lead up to Christmas, um, it's all about the growing expectation, the growing focus on the coming kingdom of God. It's not just about we look forward to December the 25th and then we can rest. It's about thinking, wow, one day, not only is Jesus coming as a baby, but he'll return in all his power as the king and bring in his kingdom. And we anticipate it and get excited about it because it's something worth getting excited about. I don't know if it's something you give a lot of thought to. Sometimes we can get so focused, can't we, in the here and the now, in in what's happening today and the, the stresses and the anxieties of the day. But sometimes we can fail to lift our eyes and remember the huge story that we're part of and the wonderful hope that God has for us in the future. I think actually our entire lives and the life of the church are lived in Advent, a glorious expectation uh, of the future coming of the kingdom of God. What does the New Testament say about this? What does the New Testament tell us about the coming kingdom? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can comprehend what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, we just can't imagine how good it's going to be. Our concept of goodness in this life is nothing compared to the goodness of God that we'll know in the life to come. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, uh, John, who writes this this wonderful uh, image of, of, of the kingdom coming, says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This wonderful picture. I mean, words can't describe really what it's going to be like, this future hope. I mean, sometimes I think we've been sold a bit of a greeting card image of heaven, this idea of sitting on a cloud and playing a harp or whatever it might be, whatever image you think comes to mind or that we see in the movies or in advertising. But actually, there's something so glorious, so incredible coming. That's the hope that we live for. That's what we're about in Advent. That's what we focus on. We remind ourselves. It's like we take the time just to lift our eyes and think, wow, the bigger story, the greater victory, the wonderful future that's coming. Heaven coming to earth, that the earth will be made new, the way it should be. Healing, there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more death, no more suffering. There'll be freedom for those who've battled all their life. The wonderful thing about the resurrection of Jesus is that it has the final word on everything. Whatever happens in this life, the resurrection has the final word. The old has gone and the new has come. And most importantly, I think, and I think this is what Matthew focuses on in his reading, is God will dwell with his people and he will make his home with them. God with us changes everything. Our Christian hope is centered almost around that one phrase, God with us. And as we come into that passage that we heard read earlier, it's the story just before the birth of Jesus. There's an anticipation of something going to come and initially the anticipation is not good. Joseph uh, discovers Mary's pregnant and, and he's not sure how that's happened. In his mind, the one he loves has been with another. But that anticipation changes from, from fear and anxiety to joy and wonder when the angel visits and says to Joseph, this is not any normal birth, any normal child. God is with us. God is with us. And so why does Matthew make that one of the first things he says about Jesus? Why is that one of the most important things about uh, the coming hope that we have? Well, firstly, we have to understand where the people were at the time. If you go back in their history, uh, about 500 years earlier, the people of Israel were, were taken captive. Their temple and their land, their city was destroyed and they were taken to Babylon or to Assyria. And they were left with no external evidence that God was with them. They had, they had sinned, they had messed up and they had been led away. And even though they'd returned to their land, even though they'd come back to their homeland and they'd rebuilt the temple and they'd resettled in their, the place where they thought God was, they knew that something still hasn't quite got right. There's still something wrong. They were still divided as a nation. They were still uh, separated from one another. They were still occupied. They'd been occupied by the Greeks and now by the Romans. They still didn't feel they had the freedom to worship and they had no king. So for them, the idea that God was with us, well, they hoped so at best. So Matthew saying to this Jewish audience that he's writing to, God is with us. God with us. In fact, he begins with that and he ends his gospel with Jesus saying, and yeah, I'll be with you to the end of the age. 
For Matthew, it's so important that he wants the Jewish audience to remember the promise of God with them. Not just one day in the future, but with them in the present. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, don't we? In the Garden of Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve and commissioned them because God is with them. Even when they gave up their freedom and abandoned God, turned away from him and disobeyed him, God stays with them. We, We know that, don't we? God never abandons us when we fail or fall. God is a God who restores and redeems and saves. What about Moses? Moses was, this, was a fallen and broken man. He'd known the riches and the glory of Egypt. He was trained by the Pharaoh. He, was the kind of, he had power and authority and he threw it away. He, he, he committed murder and ran from God or ran from, from the place of Egypt. But he was called by God to lead the people out of slavery. All that Moses had was a staff in his hand and a promise that God had given him. And this was the promise, I will be with you. I will be with you. It's amazing what we can do with just something in our hand and the promise, I will be with you. When I was um, 21, I was just finishing university and I did a degree in geography and environmental management, which I adored and I loved and I was hoping to get work and there was no really, it's very difficult to get a job in the field I was looking to get a job in, in countryside management and that sort of thing. And And so I was kind of thinking, well, what do I do? In my heart, I had a longing to somehow serve serve the church, work for church, but I didn't know what that would look like. All of a sudden, this youth work job came available. And and a couple of people said, well, why don't you think about applying for that? Now, I had absolutely no qualifications in youth work. In fact, I still only have an NVQ level three. That's not only, it took me a couple of years to get it. But in an NVQ level three, I had no qualifications. I had literally no experience of working with young people. And when I went for the interview, I was the only candidate. I'm thinking, this is going to be awkward. You know, the only person I'm interviewing has no qualifications, no experience. And and so I tried to talk a good game that I knew what I was, you know, doing. And in their wisdom, they appointed me. (laughs) I don't think I would have appointed me, if I'm really honest. But they did. And I always remember that my vicar at the time, he, he said, you know, Chris you might not have on paper what you're supposed to have and you might not have done what we'd hope you've done, but we believe in you because we think God is calling you. That's a huge affirmation and and I stayed in youth work for seven years. So there was something of of God's call on my life, but all I had was I'm just available and I'm up for it. It's amazing what God can do when we just say, God, I'm available and I'm up for it. Moses had God with him and could speak to Pharaoh, could lead this huge crowd of people out of Egypt. And the people of God, the Jewish people were always defined by the presence of God at the center of who they were. When things were going well for Israel, it was always because God was with them, that God's presence was there. So Moses and and Joshua had the tabernacle, the tent of meeting that symbolized the presence of God. Samuel uh, made sure that the worship of of Yahweh was right around Israel. David, the first thing he did was get the the Ark of the Covenant back to the center of Israel. So God with them, they knew that that meant that God was for them, not just that he was there, but that he was working out his purposes through his people. And that's why we always pray that prayer, come Holy Spirit. It's why we always pray, Lord, fill us with your presence. It's not that we can just feel good, it's because when God is with us, God is working through us 
to, to extend his kingdom, to fulfill his purposes. When we seek more of the presence of God, that's when we hear his voice. And Jesus said, you know, we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from his mouth. Do we need to put the presence of God at the center of our lives? Maybe it's something we've done, but we recognize at the minute that maybe it's not there. Maybe we've not prayed more of your presence, Lord, in my life. Because in effect, what we're praying with that prayer is, God, use me. God, take me. God, work out your kingdom purposes now through me. God, bring hope to others through me. And so when they lost all of that, that's why Matthew's saying, God with us. The, the child to be born will be called Jesus, and he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. That's why it was such hope for all those who heard it. Exile is over, Matthew is saying. You're no longer separate because God is with us. So what does that mean for us today? How, how do we apply what happened then? How do we take Matthew's words, the quote from Isaiah, the prophecy about Jesus, and apply it to our own lives? Well, the first thing I think I'd love to encourage us to do is to focus once again on the future hope of the kingdom of God. If we don't really understand it, if we are unsure of what it is that we're hopeful for, can I encourage us to explore it? Because I believe if we have a great picture of heaven, of heaven coming to earth, of the return of Jesus, of of his kingdom coming, it absolutely transforms life now. I think if we really believe that eternal life is just sitting on a cloud, that's not very exciting. I'm not sure I want to invite people to come and sit on a cloud with me for all of eternity. And the Bible doesn't present anything near to that. It presents this incredible thing the kingdom of God. And we're invited to be part of that now. And we're inviting people to join the greatest story ever told of God saving humanity. God with us, Emmanuel. Paul uh, knew the importance of having a a focus on the future hope. And here's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, because of the future hope, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, it all changes when we have a great picture of the kingdom of God and of the King, Jesus, coming again. That's what transforms our hearts. When we know that God is with us now, but one day will be with us in the most incredible way. It changes us. It gives us the ability to persevere. It brings a new perspective on our current troubles. Paul, in no way, by any definition, experienced light and momentary troubles. But that's how he saw them, because of the, the picture of the future hope that he had. If we need that to be restored to us, we can ask the Spirit of God to reveal to us and remind us of the hope we have. The second thing we do is that we pray and work to see the kingdom of God come now. This idea of the future hope is that the future hope of the kingdom of God is breaking in to our world today. God wants to do it as he's always done it, in partnership with us, in and through us, as we pray and work. As we pray the prayer, your kingdom come, and as we work to live it out. So what does that look like? Practically, what do we actually do? Well, I want to encourage us to, to take a moment to imagine something. I want you to imagine a place that you, the place that you live or the place that you work. 
I want you to imagine um, the good things about that place that you might celebrate, but also some of the struggles and the difficulties and the, the not so great things. And I want you to imagine tomorrow the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness in that place. What would be different? See, where we live, we live opposite a block of flats that's got a real problem with crime and domestic violence and loneliness. And imagine tomorrow if the kingdom of God were to come in all its fullness in that place, what would happen? Well, doors would be left unlocked. The lonely would be, would be part of a family. The addicted would be set free. The violent would find peace. God would be with his people. So how does that happen today? Well, it means that, that those of us who know Jesus in our street, we seek to be him to those we meet. We seek to bring in his kingdom there. It means that we look for the lonely and befriend them and draw them into community. It means that we, where we see destruction and darkness, we seek to bring light. It means that we clear up litter. It means that uh, you know, we, we seek to visit people. We seek to befriend people. We seek to pray for healing. We seek to bring reconciliation. That's what it means to, for the kingdom of God, the future kingdom to break into the present. And that's always been God's intention for us. We pray for it to come and we work for it to be a reality. I wonder what that would be for your street, for your community, for your workplace. Maybe it's as simple as bringing reconciliation. Maybe it's someone you need to pray for for healing. Maybe it's a neighbour that needs a visit. It could be as small as that and that can be the thing that God uses to bring his kingdom because he's always done it in partnership with his people. And the final thing I want to finish with, if God is with us, do we invite him in? God could be standing with us, but we might not notice. Again, we just need to be reminded, we need to invite him in. Um, there's this wonderful verse in Revelation chapter 3 where the picture is of a church that's turned away from God. And Jesus just pictures himself not standing in judgment, but just knocking on a door. And the picture's been painted by an artist called Holman Hunt, and it's in St. Paul's Cathedral, and many of you may be familiar with it. Um, it's a picture of Jesus standing by a, outside a door, covered in thorns and, and brambles, and he's knocking on the door. But there's no handle on the outside. The only way he can get in is if we open the door. And today we're invited to know God with us, to invite him in, to eat and drink with us. Because what God longs for more than anything else is relationship. I guess in one sense, when we think about the future hope, God dwelling with his people, living in community with us, God wants us to taste that now, to know that now, because that's what changes everything. That's what gives us hope. That's what gives us strength. It's God with you and me, God with us. And all we need to do is say, Jesus, I just today I invite you in. I invite you in to be the center. I invite you in to be the one who brings light to my path. I want to know more of you. That's the kind of prayer that we need to pray every day, really. But for some of us, I wonder whether today it's really important that we pray it, that we choose to open the door and say, Jesus, come in. Be God with me today. Why don't we stand together and pray?